0: A, that last song we just sang is, is what it's all about. I mean, praise God. Praise God. We, oftentimes we treat worship as though it, it somehow exists to platform preaching, but that couldn't be any more backwards. And the proclamation of God's word exists to platform the praise of God to the glory of God. And so right now let's, let's come to our Bibles, open to Mark chapter 10, as we continue in our worship of God. Uh, through the proclamation of his word. So Mark chapter 10, we're going to be in uh, 10 verse 32 uh, through 11 verse 11. And the title of this morning's message is, Who is this Jesus, the Servant King? So I'd like to read the the entire text, and then we'll pray together, and then we will walk through the text. So Mark chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 32. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must first or whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And verse forty-six And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went ahead and found a colt tied at a, at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. As it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we will walk through the passage together. Almighty God, we come to you right now as your children, knowing that you are a good father. Thank you for adopting us into your family through the finished work of your son, Jesus. Thank you for giving us your word. And thank you that it is inspired by your spirit who dwells within us. And that you change us through your inspired word. God, I pray that this morning that we would be changed by what you have to say to us. And Lord, as as we pray for another church every week, I want to pray for uh, Pastor Nathan Sherman and Christ Church of Albuquerque, which is uh, getting ready to be planted uh, here very soon. God, please be with Pastor Sherman, that you would be preparing him, that you would be preparing the people who are going with him, that you would be preparing the building that they will be in, and that you will be preparing a great work to be done through the proclamation of your word. uh, In that a planted church. May it be a seed that grows and bears great fruit for your name, Lord. And now as we come to your word, Lord, please humble our hearts, please open our ears, and please change our lives. Amen. Okay, so I'd like to start out the sermon this morning uh, by telling you exactly where we're going right off the bat so that you can easily follow along, because this is a very large section of Scripture. So the main idea of this morning's message is this, that a right understanding of Jesus as servant king will lead to a right response to Jesus as our servant king. I'll say that again. A right understanding of Jesus as servant king will lead to a right response to Jesus as our servant king. And so I'd like to to jump, first of all, go to verse 45 so that we can kind of see where this idea of Jesus as a servant comes from. Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus comes right out and makes it very clear the Son of Man came to serve. That's Jesus, the Son of Man. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. So Jesus is a king, and that has been well established throughout Mark. I mean, through, through our entire time through the book of Mark, we've seen Mark establish that Jesus is a king. He is the Messiah. But Jesus makes it very clear what kind of king he is. That he's a servant. So now let's jump back to Verse 32. And we'll see how the disciples miss this and, and ultimately how we miss it as well. So there are three things that we see this morning. The first of which we see uh, is the danger of a wrong view of Jesus. The danger of a wrong view of Jesus. We see in verse 32 that, that the disciples are with Jesus and there's a crowd and it says that some of them were amazed and afraid. Now we We can see as to why they would be amazed as they've been following Jesus and have been seeing things and engaging things with him, but why would they be afraid? We have to remember that the people were expecting an earthly king. They were expecting the Messiah to take an earthly throne in Jerusalem. And that's where they're heading right now. They are going up the mountain to Jerusalem. And no doubt the people that are thinking that Jesus is going to take an earthly throne are thinking, what are the Romans going to do? Jesus isn't just going to waltz in there and the Romans are just going to give it to him. They're thinking something's going to happen. Anybody following Jesus, that would likely incite fear in them. Uh, But Jesus blows up this expectation for them in verses 33 and 34 uh, when he foretells the kind of king that he is. Look at verse 33. He says, "See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after 3 days he will rise." So Jesus could not have said that any more plainly, any more clearly. Hey guys, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. Could not have said it any clearer than that. But yet, the disciples didn't get it. They didn't see this. How do we know this? Well, we see James and John misunderstanding the kind of king that Jesus is. Look at, look at what, they, what it says. Starting in verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. First of all, huge red flag, Right? Anybody who has, who has maybe young kids or teenagers, uh, and they've come up to you and said, okay, I want you to do what I'm about to ask. (laughs) And you go, nope, wasn't born yesterday, try again, right? Or or maybe you've had a friend who's like, okay, okay, I'm about to ask you something, but I need to know that you're going to say yes before I ask you. (laughs) Well, no, I'm not going to do that, right? And... And they come to Jesus, and right, Jesus' response is, what do you want me to do for you? Like, i like, I'm, I'm not going to play that game. I'm not going to let you deceive me. What do you want? And look at their request. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left, in your glory. Now, that seems innocent enough, but you got to, you, we've got to see that what they're doing is they are saying, hey, Jesus, we know you're about to take a throne when we get to Jerusalem. And, and obviously you're, you're going to be first in charge. But we want to sit at your right and your left hand, which means we want to be number two and number three under you. We want the only person over us to be you. And then we want to be able to be over everybody else. You get a throne, Jesus, and maybe, maybe we could get some smaller thrones. They, they're seeing Jesus as an earthly king because if they understood the kind of Je- king Jesus was, if they understood the kind of kingdom Jesus reigned over, this would be an insane request. Right? They're thinking earthly king, earthly throne. See, they misunderstood the kind of king that Jesus is. And I think it's amusing in Matthew, in Matthew's account of this same interaction in Matthew 20, Matthew tells us that it wasn't just James and John, it was their mom. Who asked for them? See, Mark kind of Mark leaves out that detail, but Matthew's like, "I'm throwing you guys under the bus, having your mom do your dirty work for you and go ask Jesus on your behalf." Right? But no doubt, it was still James and John's idea. They just wanted their mom to ask Jesus for them. And and, and grown men in here, don't have your mom fight your battles for you. <laughs> and, and and maybe for some of you, uh, that's something to pray about. But we won't spend any time there. But, but no doubt, it was James and John's idea. And it was what they wanted, regardless of how the request came to Jesus. Um, but not only did they misunderstand the type of king Jesus was, thinking he was an earthly king, they also misapplied their relationship to him. By misunderstanding who Jesus is, now that causes me to misunderstand how I'm going to engage him. What my relationship with him is. Verse 37, they say, grant us to sit, one at your left and one at your right hand. Now that seems innocent enough, but in the Greek, that is in what's called the imperative case, an imperative being a command. James and John are giving Jesus a command. They're not saying, hey, Jesus, could you? They're saying, Jesus, do this. Sounds very different, right? Give us this. Do this for us. Essentially, they're trying to, to exert some kind of authority over Jesus to influence him to do what they want. Like, I, 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 can, I can imagine that, that they, uh, remembering the fact that they were with him during the transfiguration on the mountain, it was just Peter, James, and John. And, and thinking about their, their time with Jesus over the past few years and, and, and their involvement with him and thinking somehow they have some kind of leverage where they can come to Jesus and say, hey Jesus, do this for us because of what we've done. And you and I are guilty of the very same thing. And we need to understand that. Where too often we uh, look at ourselves and our work The things we do, our obedience, our attendance record at church, our involvement in service projects, our Bible studies, our devotional time, our knowledge of scripture. And we appeal to that as the basis for why God should grant us what we want. We essentially say to God, look at all that I've done for you. Now I have some things I want you to do for me. When we assume that God, how, that, that God somehow owes us something uh, because of something that we've done, we seek to put God into our debt. We, we seek to make him uh, r- responsible for, for something that we think he owes us. And I can't tell you how many times I hear people say, well, well, I go to church and I pray and I read my Bible and so I just thought that God would have done this for me. And perhaps you've heard the same thing. Perhaps you've said that. And anytime I hear that, my question is, so you do things for God to get him to do things for you? Because that's not how it works. God owes us nothing. In fact, because we're sinners, the fact that God gives us anything in the first place is evidence of his grace. But he owes us, he owes us nothing so Jesus responds to James and John by putting the spotlight back on them. Look at verse 38. Jesus said to them, you, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And We have to understand that the cup, the cup is almost exclusively used in scripture to refer to God's wrath. The cup refers to the wrath of God. And Jesus was about to drink of that cup by bearing the wrath of God for our sins on the cross. And then he he says, are you able to be baptized with the baptism? And while baptism is a strictly New Testament word, the idea of immersion, which is what baptism means is very much an Old Testament idea that, that conveys being immersed in, in calamity right? being surrounded by hardship Jesus is essentially asking James and John are you are you ready to be the recipient of the wrath of God poured out on you for all mankind and be, are you ready to be surrounded by calamity and hardship and persecution and, and right in the, the, the wise response would have been um, no no now that you put it that way no I'm not ready for that But their response reveals their ignorance, where they say, we are. And Jesus goes on to acknowledge that they will, in fact, partake of the cup and the baptism. Uh, in, In verse 39, he says that they will drink of the cup, though not in the same way that Jesus does. And we'll get to that in a bit. But they will also experience being surrounded by calamity when they are persecuted for their faith later in their lives. But ultimately, James and John made a huge mistake by seeing Jesus only as they wanted to see him and then responding to Jesus according to their assumptions. They thought this is the Messiah who's going to rescue us from Rome and they responded to him accordingly. And we should be so careful to not do the same thing. See, we too often we try to tell Jesus who he is. We try to tell him who he is and then we respond to him according to who we want him to be. We choose the attributes of him that we like and we ignore the rest. And, and in the way that we talk and in the way we live, we so often communicate an attitude that says, Jesus just be cool with my sins, be tolerant of my lifestyle, be loving toward me. I don't want to hear about wrath. I don't want to hear about judgment. I don't want to hear about justice. Just just love me for me. And we, we tell Jesus who he is. Jesus, you would never send somebody to hell. We tell him who he is. Instead of letting him tell us who he is, we're He very much speaks of the wrath and the justice of God. and He he speaks of hell more than anybody else in the Bible, but yet we make such a habit of telling him who he is and then responding to him accordingly. Instead, we should let him tell us who he is. So with this in mind, let's let Jesus tell us who he is. So we see Jesus show us how he is a servant king. And he starts, he starts by explaining the way of the world. Verse 42. Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. That, that phrase, uh, the who are considered rulers of the Gentiles literally can be translated those who think they are rulers. See, oftentimes we assume that we have authority that we don't, or we assume that we have more authority than we actually have, and then we engage those around us according to that authority that we want to have, not necessarily what we actually have. And this doesn't just mean in political or work-related realms. We also do this in our personal life. When we demean others, try to put down others as a means of elevating ourselves or getting what we want, reminding others of ways that we've come through for them in order to put them in our debt, making them think they owe us something because of what we've done in the past, bringing up old sins and hurts as a means of guilting someone into agreeing to do what we want, using a position of authority for personal gain instead of the betterment of others and the glory of God. And Jesus responds to this in verse 43 by saying, It shall not be so with you. If you call yourself, if you call yourself a follower of Christ, th- this way of functioning, holding things over the heads of others, is unacceptable. We cannot function the way that the world functions. It's unacceptable for a believer to use anything against another person in order to coerce or manipulate them. It's unacceptable for a spouse to use past hurts or past sins as as a bargaining chip in their marriage against their spouse. It's not okay to use your position at work or in the church to manipulate people into doing what you want. That's the way the world works. But Jesus has a very different way that his disciples should work. He says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So it's important that we note that Jesus uses two different terms that in English sound similar, servant and slave. We have kind of, kind of similar ideas in English as to what those mean. But, but in Greek, they're totally different. A servant in Greek, is, is a, literally an intermediary for someone else in a transaction. You work on behalf of someone else. You think of a business transaction where uh, if you are the servant, you go and enact the transaction, but it's on behalf of your employer. A slave is literally a bond servant, someone who is purchased to serve. You're owned by someone. One is who you work for, the other one is who owns you. And Jesus says, if you want to be great, you've got to be both. Essentially saying, work on each other's behalf as though you belonged to each other. Now this idea in our Western society of, of serving others is already received uh, pretty poorly. But then when you, when you consider our history as a nation... The idea of slavery and being owned by someone is repulsive to our culture. Repulsive. And and so we hear that word and we instantly think of, of that kind of slavery and we go, no, no one owns me. No one owns me. I serve no one. At least that's the way that our society functions. And I think that Jesus anticipates this response. He anticipates this objection. I, don't, I, I work for me. I, I'm not owned by anybody. I'm my own person. Because then he, he follows up by saying, for. Okay, that, that word, anytime you see that, you need to look at what comes after and what comes before because it serves to link the two. So Jesus goes on in verse 45 to explain why the disciples should conduct themselves in this manner. Why they should be ready to serve one another. Why they should be ready to, to act as though they were owned by another. It says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, why should you serve like this? Why should you serve one another? Why should you put yourself aside as though, as though you didn't belong to yourself? He's saying, because I did it first. Because Jesus did it first. Jesus shows us the way of the servant king as, as he says, guys, you, you know the, that no servant is above his master, right? And I came to serve So if I came to serve and you are my disciples, then you should serve one another because I set the example for you to follow. So what does it look like then? What does it look like for Jesus to be a servant? Well, he tells us in verse 45, says, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We talk so often about serving God and serving Christ without ever making mention of the fact that Jesus was a servant first. We talk about the love of God and the grace of God as the basis for our service all the while forgetting that Jesus told us that the basis for our service should be the very fact that he served first. And what ends up happening is that we end up seeing ourselves as the servant first. And then when I see myself as a servant, forgetting that Jesus was the servant first, then we use language like, because of what God has done, I must. Or because of the death of Christ, I have to. We essentially respond to God out of obligation, not of duty. We make serving God a matter of paying him back. Now, now serving God is very much a biblical idea. But, but when it's when we don't understand how Jesus was a servant first, and we see ourselves as the primary servant of God, that, that we turn serving God into a return transaction where we try to pay him back for the righteousness that he credited to us. we have to understand that it's a blasphemous thing to say, I will repay God. I'll pay him back for what he did. Through my service, I'll pay God back for the fact that he bought my life. Because the fact that God had to purchase our salvation in the first place is because we couldn't pay the price. So, my attempts to earn God's favor or somehow pay him back through my works are foolish because I could never pay the price in the first place. See, Jesus came to serve by laying his life down as a wrath absorbing sacrifice that would pay for my sins and your sins and the sins of everyone who would put their faith in him. He didn't come to be served, he came to serve. Now, the idea of Jesus as a servant tends to make us recoil a little bit, tends to kind of make us a little nervous to refer to him that way. A lot of times our response is no, I will not think of Jesus in such a lowly way. I will not demean him to the level of a servant. And it's, if, you, if you feel that way, it's okay. I think a lot of people feel that way, but there are two things you need to know. There are two things you need to hear if that's how you feel. Of, I, I, won't, I won't see Jesus as a servant. First of all, you're in good company because that was Peter's response when Jesus washed the disciples' feet in John chapter 13. Jesus doing the lowest Task of the lowest servant and washing the disciples' feet. And what was Peter's response? No, you will not do this. I will not let you wash my feet. And Jesus' response to to Peter was, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. And his response would be the same to us. If you don't let me serve you, If you don't let me be a servant first, you'll have no share with me. To which our response should be the same as Peter's, right? Peter's response, when Jesus said that to him, he said, then not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Right? All of me. And that should be our response to Jesus too. When we hear of Jesus as a servant, our response to him shouldn't be, no. It should be, okay. If to have part with you, I must let you serve me, then Lord, serve me in whatever way you see fit. That's the first thing. The second, if you are cautious to see Jesus as a servant, is that Jesus being a servant is only a negative thing if it somehow means that he's lower than we or it somehow means that we deserve for, himself, or for him to lower himself. But that's not the case at all. The reality is that Jesus emptied himself, became a servant for the, of his own accord for the purpose of God the Father. Had nothing to do with what you or I brought to the table. It had everything to do with what God brought to the table, his purposes, and his glory. And so Jesus saying that the Son of Man came to serve not to be served, is his choice, his doing, and has nothing to do with anything you or I did. In fact, the truth that Jesus is a servant is incredibly significant because it reinforces, it reinforces the truth that we are wholly dependent on him. Because I cannot do a thing if Jesus doesn't serve me, if Jesus doesn't love me, if he doesn't take it on himself to bear my burdens and to carry me, I'm hopeless. I am not self-sufficient in any way, especially when it comes to my own salvation. I have no ability in myself to accomplish anything to honoring to God. I must be dependent on Jesus. And Jesus being a servant first reinforces that. So we would be so wrong to hear these words of Jesus and to respond by saying, then this is what I must do. Okay, because of what you've done, God, now here are all the things I have to do. Instead, our response should be that of thanksgiving and praise and worship and glad exclamation that I am not deserving of this kind of love and that I take no credit for the fact that I receive this kind of love for the creator of the world to come down and take the form of a servant and pay my ransom. And I not only take no credit, but I also recognize that I could never pay God back. And so I would not be so foolish as to try. Instead, I receive it through faith, utterly, totally, eternally being dependent on Jesus as my greatest hope and my greatest joy. You see what, Jesus uses this word ransom in, uh, in, in verse 45. And, and what we have to understand is that within that word in the Greek is the exact same root word that is in the Greek word for redemption. They share the same word. So to get an idea of this, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3 verse 23 through 25, See, the way that we respond to Jesus as our servant king is to receive this gift of service for our ransom by faith. How do we know this, though? How do we know this, and how can we see what this looks like? Mark goes on to recount an exchange between Jesus and a blind man named Bartimaeus uh, in this next section. And in it, we see the result of a right view of Jesus we see the result of a right view of Jesus. Now we don't have time to just read, read back through it again, but you, you remember Jesus is leaving Jericho, going up to Jerusalem, and as they're heading up, this blind man named Bartimaeus starts crying out to Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. See, the first thing that we notice is that our the result of a right view of Jesus is responding in humility. The confession, son of David, have mercy on me, is the acknowledgement, first off, of the kingship of Jesus. Son of David, the the heir to the eternal throne that was promised to King David. Bartimaeus is saying, you're a king. Have mercy on me is the recognition that he needs Jesus to do something for him that he can't do for himself it's the recognition that Jesus is a servant see where the disciples responded to Jesus in arrogance and assumption Bartimaeus responded to Jesus in humility where the disciples told Jesus uh, who he was and responded accordingly Bartimaeus uh, responded to Jesus according to the truth of who he actually was Jesus calls Bartimaeus to him in verse 51. And he asked Bartimaeus the exact same question that he asked the disciples. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus responded by saying, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Now what we have to understand, right, just like with with James and John when they said, grant us and how that was actually a command. Because it was in the imperative tense. This is in a tense in the Greek that, that says this is a request. It could just as easily be translated, would you grant me my sight? Would you allow me to have my sight? Humility. Right? What a different kind of approach to Jesus. See, Bartimaeus had a right understanding of Jesus as a servant king. And it led to a right response to Jesus as his servant king. So what was Jesus' response? Jesus says, go your way, your faith has made you well. And Bartimaeus could see. Just like that. And what was Bartimaeus' response? Look Look at the end of verse 52. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. We, we have to understand the, the, the gravity of this moment. Because it's very easy to miss these things when we're just reading it on the page. Put yourself in the shoes of a blind man who is begging. Perhaps you've been blind for years, maybe your whole life. And Jesus comes to you and you ask him to give you your sight back and he does. And then he says, go your way. You can go anywhere now. You can go see anybody. You can go see any place. Imagine the people that he knew. Perhaps he had loved ones he had never seen. Maybe he had kids. Maybe he had a wife. Who knows? Maybe he had spent time in a marketplace and heard sounds and smelled smells, but had no idea what anything looked like. Imagine that's you, and your eyes are opened, and you can see. Where's the first place you're going? Who's the first, place you want, or who's the first person you want to go see? What is the first sight that you want to behold with your new vision? Bartimaeus had that same choice and he chose to follow Jesus. And when you put yourself in his shoes and when you put yourself in that place of I was blind and now I can see and you think of that place or that person that you would want to go to first but you're looking at Jesus. Jesus. Does the idea of leaving those things to follow him give you more joy so that you would go follow him is that your response to Jesus is that your response to Jesus when he heals you when he saves you when he redeems you I hope it is See, when I see how Jesus served me, loves me, redeems me, restores me, heals me, I long to follow him. When we come face to face with Jesus, when we behold who he is and how he served us and how he is also our king, it should drive us to respond in obedience. Not out of obligation as a means of paying him back, but as a means of thanksgiving in which which we say, there is nothing as valuable and as enjoyable as allowing you to serve me and ransom me and love me. Just let me follow you. Just let me follow you. And I pray, I pray that that would be every single one of our responses this morning. Jesus, for all you have done, I just want to follow you. You served me. You don't need me to serve you. I just want to follow you. Lastly, when we see Jesus rightly, we see him as he means to be seen. Verses, uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, we see Jesus riding into Jerusalem. Uh, and this is, this is very much a king's entry. You see, kings who had conquered would ride into town on a horse and there would be crowds to receive them and they would lay palm branches and cloaks on the ground and and it was a means of elevating the king and giving him honor. And it's as if Mark anticipated that the reader is wondering, wait, what happened to this king stuff? All you've been talking about is Jesus serving. I thought he was a king. And Mark brings us back to say, yes, he is a king. But something's different about this king. He's not riding on a horse. He's not riding on a glamorous animal that is well adorned. He's riding on a donkey. Now this is a fulfillment of a prophecy in Zechariah about the Messiah. But it's also a way of showing Jesus is not an earthly king. Jesus is a humble king. He is a servant king, and we see people throwing their cloaks on the ground in front of him. And verse seven, and they brought the, the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road. A cloak uh, was an outer garment. Okay, you had an undergarment, and then you had an outer garment. Clothes have come a long way since then. And they had this, this just very, very basic outer fabric that was very thick. And they would wear it. And it served many purposes. It was the closest thing to being an absolute life essential that you could get without being food or water. I mean, they, they used the cloak to shield them from bad weather, to keep them warm when it was cold, It served many purposes, and they are taking these things off and laying them on the ground for Jesus' colt to walk on. What we have to understand is that 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 garment, it was not just a piece of fabric. It, It was a source of security. It was a source of comfort. It was a necessity for their daily lives. And by taking it off, they were vulnerable They were exposed. And what would it look like today for us to do the same thing? What what things in our lives would serve as the cloak that we lay down before our king to give him honor and glory in our lives? Just ask yourself, what, what things are important to me that I would be willing to lay at the feet of my servant king in response to who he is. Maybe maybe the way you use your home, who you invite into your home, maybe the way you use your money. Do I hoard it for myself or do I lay it at the feet of Jesus to honor him for his purposes? My plans... This has been a big one for me. Just ideas about the future and plans and and the security that comes with that or the perceived security that comes with that. And saying, I'll lay this down. If I could just have more of you. What things in our lives would we be willing to lay down before Jesus? Jesus even if it meant that we were vulnerable, even if it meant that we were exposed, even if it meant that we weren't secure anymore. But we say, Jesus, i will gladly lay this down if I can just have more of you. And we finish with verse 11 where it shows Jesus walking into the temple. And it was late, but it says that he looked around at Everything. And next week we'll see what Jesus saw and how he responded to what he saw. But Jesus has shown us the danger of having a wrong view of him. He's shown us who he is so that we can have a right understanding of him. And then we see the result of a right response to Jesus. So, how will you respond to Jesus as a servant king? Will you elevate yourself based on your preconceived notions of who Jesus is? Or will you respond to him rightly because of who he truly is? And as you see, we have the communion tables out this morning. And I can think of no greater way to, to meditate on the servanthood of Jesus than through communion where Jesus laid down his life as a ransom for many and if you remember earlier in the sermon I talked about how James and John would drink of the cup that Jesus mentioned but in a different way James and John drink of the cup in the same way that you and I do Where Jesus drank of the cup of God's wrath, where he bore the wrath of God for the sins of mankind that we could receive mercy because of the finished work of Jesus. You and I partake of the cup because we are recipients of God's mercy in light of the finished work of Jesus. And so as you come, Uh, We tend to have quite a traffic jam in the front, so if you can head to the back, please do that. Uh, But we have a gluten-free option up front. We practice open communion here, which means that if you have put your faith in Jesus, and you are a follower of Jesus, regardless of whether or not you are a member of this church, you are free to come and partake in communion with us. If you have not put your faith in Jesus, this is not for you. However, Jesus is, paid the price for your sin that you could receive mercy and salvation and so if you say God I want to honor you and follow you by confessing my sin and following your son with my life then tell him that give your life to him and come take communion with us so with that please come forward